Okay. Can you guys hear me on Zoom? Thank you. Yes. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. Now, now you have to be. It's your turn. So, uh, no, but I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be invited to share my experience, strength, and hope with you guys, which is, um, like, finally, you guys asked me, no, I'm, it's, uh, it really is a pleasure to be here. And it's a nice group that you guys have uh, out in the middle of, I don't know, Miguel, I guess we are. We took the 73 to get here from Huntington or whatever. So I have to pay a toll. Just, I'm just going to ask for that money back out of the basket or something, I think. I'm cheap. I'm, um, I'm grateful for the life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. And whatever expense, whatever expense might come up along the way, whether it's a couple hundred bucks to help a sponsor with rent, a ride to a meeting, whatever. And what's our most valuable resource? The most valuable thing that you've got? Time. Time. Time spent with another alcoholic working, either reading the book, driving to meetings, picking them up, doing these things, like that's the most valuable resource that I possess. Because right? I don't necessarily possess God, I don't think. God is the most important thing in my recovery, obviously. Uh, there's no recovery without God. But I think that when we give of ourselves and our time, something occurs for us. And I don't realize that I'm benefiting from that experience, right? It's like, I never did anything in my life. I'm a, I'm a drug dealer. I'll just tell you, like straight out. I'm a drug dealer type. And when I say that, I mean that in like every sense of the word. My mentality is like, what do you have for me right here, right now? What am I getting out of this deal? If we're together, there's a reason and I'm getting something out of this, right? And so when <laughs> faced with the proposition of the ability to be sober is dependent on my a relationship that I build with my higher power, right? My creator, um, in my case, and taking some simple steps. I wanna know what the result's gonna be in advance. I don't just do stuff hoping, you know, I never gave someone, you know, a bag of drugs and said, well, I hope you give me my money back, right? Or the money that you owe me for these. Like, I always want to know, like, I kind of want some cash up front at least, right? Which is like, if I start doing the work that they talk about outlined in the book, I want to know what the results are going to be. What's beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous is even though it may not have happened for me yet, when I first come in, I see that it's happened for you. Because the men that were in recovery when I got sober, the men that were in the rooms that I was going to, were men that I aspired to be like. They were men that had some integrity and they were men that had, they had some of the characteristics in a, in a man that I admired. And there were no women in the groups when I got sober. So I, I admire the recovery that women have as much as I do the recovery that men have. And sometimes more, if I'm honest. I don't know why that is, but I do. And, um, like I used to listen to tapes of Karen Garrison. Anybody know who Karen Garrison is? Nobody? So Clancy sponsored Karen for many, many years. 
And she tells, and if you listen to her story, she's got a tape, look for Karen G. Any tape of Karen G from the old days. She's the fastest talking woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. No one's ever spoke faster than her and nobody ever will. If you've ever heard Norm Alpe talk, she's faster than Norm. And that's saying something. So Karen Garrison spoke like, like way faster than I speak. And her story was spectacular because she talks about one time, you know, she's running down the side of the freeway naked. She'd been left for dead. Her teeth were kicked in and she's getting arrested. And the cops say, oh, looks like she was pretty once. You know what I mean? Like these types of things that had happened to her. Well, when Karen retired or was, she passed away from, from an illness, but she, you know, she lived to be a ripe old age in AA. She was sober many, many years in her forties. She was the head of the UCLA, the head of the surgery team for the UCLA Medical Center. That's what sobriety had given her from the woman who was chased down, naked in the streets, no teeth, getting arrested again, to the chief of staff for the UCLA Medical Surgery and not like, and like the serious stuff. She was a fine example of someone that Alcoholics Anonymous can take from literally from the gutter, homeless, you know, no prospects on the horizon. And, uh, and a miracle occurs and it takes time. You know, Trevor, uh, congratulations on the three years and all the chip takers like welcome. And, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. But three years is a miracle, man. I know, you know, I know. Okay, a couple facts to get the basics out of the way. My sobriety date is uh, June 21st of 2000. So I'm sober a little over 22 years now. Um, my sponsor is a man named Aiden Akbarut. He's uh, an AA member in good standing, as far as I know. <laughs> and um, my home group is, I guess it would be the Wednesday night Gucci or Monday night Seal, Speak, Seal Beach Speakers group. Um, those are kind of, I attend mainly speaker meetings. I attend a few share meetings, but mainly speaker meetings is where I get most of my, I don't know, I just get fed at speaker meetings, man. I like to hear someone's whole story. You know, you can get bits and clips from people and that kind of stuff, but you really get to know someone when you listen to them share their whole story. The only problem with speaking or being a speaker is generally um, a speaker will come from out of town. So I might get their phone number and I might follow up and I might not. So I might not see that people that person regularly in meetings, but the people that I attend meetings regularly with, I'm closer to than the person that I know their whole life story. And some guys I've only heard chair for two, three minutes in an AA meeting for years. You know, it's just weird. So um, observations in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know this isn't entertaining. I'm just going to talk and tell my story. Um, but you know what? I'm not here to entertain you. I used to be here to entertain you. I would open with a joke, a little inappropriate, get the women like yeah, laughing a little bit, maybe. And uh, that's not going to be that kind of talk tonight. I will tell you, there is something that I have noticed about uh, how do you know two newcomers are on a second date? The moving van, you know? <laughs> Anyways, whatever. Okay, that's out of the way. I got you guys to smile a little bit. Um, I was born, I was born, I was born in, uh, in Glendale, California. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, what was that? She was awesome. You were born in Glendale? I was born at Glendale Memorial Hospital in 19, 
86, no, 66, <laughs> I'm sorry, 66, 66. So uh, 55 years old. I didn't get sober until I was 33. And it, it, I had a chance at sobriety and recovery. When I was 18 years old, I went through rehab. I went through a 30 day inpatient. Um, I had a small cocaine problem. Um, I was freebasing, you know, before crack even happened. And, uh, and then I, I tried some of the crack later though. <laughs> I'm a crackhead, so um, I mean, you, I qualify as a crackhead. Uh, point is, I went into rehab when I was 18 years. My mom, my mom raised me in LA. I, we lived in Los Feliz district before it was popular to live in Los Feliz, like when it was like you know the frog gangs. And, well, there was all kinds of stuff going on in LA back then, but they weren't the gangs that we kind of have grown up with now. As I guess we're mostly millennials or whatever. Yeah, now that. There was no guns back then. Every now and then someone would get shot, but it was mostly like chains and knives and switchblades and that kind of stuff. That's the gang violence that I grew up with in LA. It wasn't, you know, just drive-bys and shooting people for no reason. It was like these guys, literally there would be a group of guys with chains and bats and knives and another group of guys and they would just like collide. I don't know, but it's become something completely different, but that's where I grew up at. And, um, and, I, until I was eight years old, my mom met a guy. So my mom and my dad split when I was six months old. My dad lived in Burbank. He was a bookie and um, he was a, he was an illegal gambling. Uh, well, you guys might know what a bookie is. Anyways, my dad was a bookie. My grandpa was a bookie. My uncle's a bookie. Everyone on that side of the family is a bookie. They're second generation Irish and they came from Ireland and they had this thing and they just took over basically bookmaking in LA. And, um, so they're a criminal sort of people, you know, Irish criminal, fine line between Irish criminal and Irish cop. Like it's almost the same person. Like you could literally in a family of Irish, like halfway down, like these half are criminals and these half are police that arrest them kind of, it's just weird. But so I come from that kind of a family. That's, that's kind of my upbringing. My dad was a Disneyland dad. He would show up on the, you know, once a year, he lived 12 miles from me and he would show up once a year, take us to Disneyland, Magic Mountain, something like that. So I didn't really have a father figure until I was like eight years old. And my mom met this guy. Uh, they were drinking in Long Beach at this place called The Pike. And, um, and my, mom, my mom liked to drink. She worked at the studios. My mom was an executive secretary for ABC, NBC, CBS, like some, she was fairly, my mom was really, she was a good looking woman and she, um, she dated a lot and went to the bars a lot. That's in the seventies, that was her scene. And um, she had, you know, various boyfriends that she would bring home on occasion, but never a relationship. My mom never had like a serious boyfriend. And not until I was eight years old, she met this guy, Phil. So she meets Phil and Phil is, he's got, he's got red hair, long red hair. He wears a green flak jacket because he just got out of the Marines. He was a, uh, you know, whatever. He was a Vietnam vet and he'd just gotten out. This is 1974. And um, we don't know this, but Phil is a really bad alcoholic. And, and he's a very, he's got PTSD. They didn't call it that then. We just thought he was nuts. But every now and then he'd freak out, you know, and he had a lot of guns and he, he was extremely uh, violent at times and so 
I went from growing up with the mom. I have an older brother too. He's a year older than me. I went growing up from like being the mom's little boy, right? To I have a new stepdad and he's uh, prone to extreme violence at any given moment. And he's a green beret and he's tough, but he's just like, doesn't have a job. You know what I mean? He's the kind of guy that builds a house on the back of an international and says, let's move to Oregon. You know, he wants to be in the, in the wilderness or whatever, away from the city and all the people. So I moved from Los Feliz. We lived in Beverly Hills for a little while. And then we moved to Oregon on the back of a truck. It took us three months to get there because halfway there, the truck broke down. The, you know, the motor blew up at the, in the Feather River in a place called Quincy, California. It's Northern California on your way to Oregon. We, so it took us three months to get from LA to the border of Oregon. I mean, we, we stopped in Ashland and that's where, that's where I took my first drink, really. It's where I smoked my first, you know, so it wasn't a drink, it was in you know marijuana form or whatever. My buddy's mom grew pot and we stole some of her pot and smoked it. I was eight years old. And I actually do remember that. I remember smoking it. I don't remember having any effects from it. I don't remember any, any of that stuff, but anyways. So my mom's with uh, the guy for a couple of years and I don't really want to talk about this, but I should, but I remember the first time he hit her, you know, he didn't abuse us too much. Every now and then there was some corporal punishment, pick a stick out of the wood pile type stuff. Cause we were bad kids. I was, I was a bad kid. Let's just face it. Like I, you know, I was a vandal. I was just a bad kid. And so some punishment every now and then would be appropriate. It's not like the take your phone stuff that I deal with now, right? It was more, it was a little more serious. And I've been, you know, it was like immediate consequences and they might be uh, serious. So, but the first time he hit her, hit her, like she had to, she had to tell the people at work that she had been in a car accident, you know, broken nose, two black eyes from that other damage contusions i've seen my mom you know i've literally seen my mom get the shit beat out of her and i loved my mom you know and i'm a 10 year old kid and i can't protect her and i feel like a coward because when the violence starts i run and hide you know i blamed myself for a long time for not being able to protect her and a lot of the insecurity and the stuff that i grew up with and the not feeling good enough and not feeling strong enough and not feeling like a man was stuff that was from when I was 10 years old and there's a grown man abusing my mother and I can't stop it. And all I can do is hide, you know, or be away, you know? So when I grew up, I overcompensated. I've been in well over a hundred fist fights. I used to, I was an extremely violent character any given time. I know I don't look like it. I look like probably an insurance salesman or something like that. I don't know what I look like. I look like probably a normal guy, right? Probably sell insurance to you. But, uh, but at the time I wasn't, I was a bar fighter. I was a, I was a serious fighter. I've had fights for, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm just telling you, like I used to fight for money and in warehouses and that kind of stuff. And, uh, I got really good at like punishing people for their behavior. And that's what I thought my role was. If you were out of line at any time with any woman that was anywhere near me, you were getting punished. And so I became my stepdad. Didn't even fucking know it. I didn't see it. 
I wasn't abusive to women ever. I was a protector of them, but I was abusive and I didn't even see it. And I was just compensating for this, the way that I felt when I was a kid, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, I haven't even taken a drink yet. I'm sorry, you guys. 20 minutes into my talk, I haven't had a drink yet. At 12, she left him. He went to jail for the weekend. She left him. She's pregnant. With, I was 10, excuse me. She's pregnant with my little sister. And he was trying to kick her in the stomach when she's pregnant. So he goes to jail oh, one weekend, you know, every now and then they'd come out and get him. And it was really difficult where we lived at National. We didn't live in the city limits. So they would have to, like the state police would have to come get him and to just to get him away for the weekend. And, you know, we loaded up the station wagon. You guys remember those? We saw one today. <laughs> loaded up the station wagon and uh, we landed at Huntington Beach. And so I spent my formative years, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 in Huntington Beach, California. And it was 1977, 1978, 79. And we left like early 1980, uh, I believe. So I don't know, a lot of it's kind of fuzzy from back then. But anyways, at 10 and a half, I took my first drink, hit off some weed, whatever I found. And I was in fifth grade and I remember it. I don't remember my first one, but I remember that I fell immediately in love with the effects produced by drugs and alcohol. If you gave me, at the time, there were the, I don't know, Dexatrim, whatever. My dad was a roofer. He'd give me a couple of Dexies. I'm 10 years old, 11 years old. He would pull me out of school, and I would go roof houses with my dad, you know, my new stepdad. Actually, at the time, he was my mom's boyfriend. So um, that's the kind of lifestyle that I grew up with. We, we would hustle the liquor stores. I would go to Alpha Beta. If you guys remember Alpha Beta, it was a supermarket. And then we would steal cigarettes. We'd steal cigarettes. We would steal alcohol. We would steal whatever we could from the grocery store. And then we would work in the liquor store and we would throw booze in the trash because I was, you know, we'd, we'd, we would just like help the guy stock the cooler and we would toss booze in the trash and then we would go in after the shift and steal the booze out of it. You know, I had a little hustle is what I'm saying. I've had, always had a little bit of hustle to me. And, um, but it was to secure what at that point, believe it or not, I was a daily drinker, a daily user at 12 years old. Like I see my son now, he's in the front row, he's 13. And, uh, and my daughter, she's 15 and her boyfriend, Max. This is Nick and Elena and Max, my beautiful wife, Jasmine. And um, I was younger than them, like a lot younger than them. And I was like already running around in stolen vehicles, robbing people, robbing houses robbing the local whatever establishments to get what I felt like I needed at that time. And um, I never met a drink or a drug that I, I've never said, I've had enough cocaine, thank you very much. <laughs> Anyone, I mean, like, at what point do you say I'm good? You know what I mean? I never said I'm good. I never tried to quit. People, like when they go through chapter three, I don't relate. I've never tried to control anything ever in my life. All I know is I want more of whatever. If it's the day starts out smoking some weed and there's going to be a kegger party tonight. So a guy stops by with mushrooms and then the guy stops by with acid after and you have a couple of Percodan and then, uh, you know, there's going to be a kegger party. Like, I take all of it. I like to ride, you know, up, down, up, down. I, you know, I'm all for the roller coaster, whatever's happening, you know. Um, 
they called them garbage can drug addicts in the 80s. And that's who I was. And that's the kind of kid that I was. When I was 18, I went to rehab from the cocaine problem. I was the only kid that knew how to rock up cocaine. So if you brought your powder, I knew how to turn it into a crystal that we could smoke in a glass pipe or whatever. But I was the only one that knew how to do it. Nobody else was trusting their powder. You know what I mean? Pour it in water. And how are you going to get it back? You don't want to drink that shit, you know? So I was the, I, so, but I knew, I learned that, that I could be the guy that knew how to do that because everybody's wanting to smoke coke back then. And I was the guy that knew how to get it back. I was the guy that knew how to, if you put it in water, I was the chemist of the group and I could get it back and everybody trusted me. So if you got some cocaine and you came to my house, we could smoke because I would cook it up for you and then I would get to smoke for free, right? I was always in the middle, always in the hustle. I was never a baller or anything like that. Anyways, I had a small cocaine problem in, the, in 1985 and I went to rehab for 30 days. And actually I was 18 years old and um, almost 19 and I, I got clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. We were living in Sacramento by then. And um, I spent my four minute years in Sacramento when I was 13, we moved up there and I don't know why. If you ever go to Sacramento, just keep going. Just don't even, just, I know it's the capital and everything, but just keep driving. There's nothing there. It's like the worst place in the world. I went from Huntington Beach in 1979 to Sacramento. Punk rock was happening. My friends had blue hair, safety pins in their cheeks. It was wide open. The surfing competition, they were having riots on the pier during the surfing competitions. We went today, but in 1986, there was a riot that, believe me, Huntington Beach will never forget. Like they turned over cars, smashed the whole downtown, but the pier, all kinds of shit happened in 86. If you are from this area, you'll know. And, um, but anyways, I went from that to Sacramento. And they have a river. Wow. You know, I go to the beach every day. Like I'm a body surfing, you know, little kid. Anyways, I might still be resentful of my mother for that. But we moved to Sacramento and that's where I spent my formative years. I went into rehab and I got clean and I got involved in young people's AA. I didn't really get a sponsor. I didn't really work any steps. I just kind of like heard what you guys were saying. I could mimic that stuff. You know, I was fairly intelligent, you know, kind of, especially after I sobered up and, uh, and I could, I could kind of, I kind of like, you know, I really believed that if I just came to your meetings that I could like never get high again, never have to drink again, never anything. And it lasts for about my experience about five, five and a half years. Cause when I was 20 and I was faced with the proposition 23 and I was faced with the proposition of okay, I am, I am literally surviving on my character defects. I falsify documents to get an apartment because I want all the rewards that other people are getting in AA. I want the girlfriend. I'm 23. You know, I want a girlfriend. I want money. I want a car. I want my own apartment, my own place to live. I want all these things, but I don't know how to, I'm not employable. Like I can show up for a couple of weeks and do real good. And then after that, it's just like, eh, you know, I don't think I'm going to come to work today. And then, and I did that. I don't know how many jobs I went through. I started a little business with a guy and he's super prosperous to this day. He still has that business. We started in 1988 and today he still owns the company. And, um, but I just, you know, after a while I was like, yeah, I don't really want to go to work. And so I, the only character defects that I have to fall back on, I was a thief. I was a real bad thief in my 
in my youth. And um, so I start doing commercial burglaries, clean and sober. I mean, I'm five years sober and I need to pay rent and I need to make the car payment, which I follow, I falsified documents to get the car. I lied about a pay stub. Uh, you know, I had somebody, I had my mom actually type up a pay stub for me at work at her advertising agency job so that I could get, holy shit. Sorry, you guys. Um, anyways, I got sober for a little while in, in the in the eighties and then, um, wow, I'm really sorry, you guys. I went way too long with that, my youth. <laughs> Here's what happened. You want me to stop now? Oh, okay, okay. Um, what happened was, is, is that I had untreated alcoholism and I was dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't working steps. I didn't have a sponsor. I'd never, I didn't know the literature. I didn't know any of that stuff. And so my natural progression is I got into dealing drugs because I'd seen a movie, Scarface, and don't get high on your own supply. And so in 1990, I started selling methamphetamine. And in 1990, between 90 and 93, I sold a lot of methamphetamine. And at the end, I was using it. I, I started getting high on my own supply. And in 1995, I was indicted by the federal government for uh, manufacturer intent with possession with intent to distribute a thousand kilos of methamphetamine. And then I was sentenced to 23 years in federal prison. So in 1995, I went into prison. And in 2014, they let me out. What I'm saying is I had untreated alcoholism and I didn't realize that I was dying in the rooms and I didn't know that a prison sentence was coming, but I had no defense against the drink. I had no defense against the drug dealing. I had no defense against any of it because I hadn't done what they talked about doing. I hadn't actually put the work in. You know, I was young, so I kind of give myself a little bit of, you know. So I go away for 20 years and um, the first five years I got as drunk and loaded as I possibly could to obliterate the truth of my present circumstances, which is the fact that my grandparents were gonna be dead by the time I get out. My sister just had a baby, six months old when I got arrested. The baby was gonna be 20 when I got out. And that was the truth. That happened. She only knew me from the visiting rooms for 20 years. And I don't look like the guy that went to prison for 20 years, I don't have any face tattoos, you know? <laughs> you know, I, uh, there's a reason why I never got tattoos. The truth, I was going to escape and I didn't want identifying marks. And that's the real reason why I never got tattoos. I'm not scared of needles. I'll shoot dope, you know, from here to eternity. But uh, my life changed and everyone's life changed the minute that I got, obviously, when I was fighting the case and then I got sentenced. And so for the first five years that I was inside, I was trying to get girls to bring me drugs. I was trying to live a lifestyle in there, maintain the habit, keep getting as loaded as I could. Cause I started using meth for the last two years before I got arrested. 93 to 95, I used a lot. I had a love affair with methamphetamine. I don't know why, I just really liked the effect produced by methamphetamine. And um, I'm a daily drinker. Let's see, what else can I tell you? Uh, and you're never supposed to say that as a speaker, but. I was playing softball in prison. I was on a maximum security penitentiary in Lompoc, California, and I was in the federal system, not in the state system. I had been to the state, but I was in the feds. And I was strung out on heroin because if you hand me some heroin and say, can you pay me in two weeks? I'm never gonna say no. 
I'll say yes every I mean, is this going to change the way that I feel? If you hand me weed, you hand me meth, you hand me speed, you hand me anything you hand me and say, can you pay me later? I'm never going to say no. I'm always going to say yes. I'm that kind of an addict. Like, I don't care if, I don't care if there's a physical jeopardy immediate. I don't care if I'm going to get stabbed in two weeks. I don't care. I'm doing 20 years. I'm going to give a shit and I can fight. So I wasn't worried about that part of it, but armed close quarters combat is a whole different animal when you're inside. So my life was at risk, but I didn't care. I couldn't say no. I'm that kind of an addict that even when I know that the circumstances could literally cost me my life, I don't care. I say, yes, give it to me. I'll pay you later. And so I was playing softball because when I'm on heroin, I like to play softball. <laughs> Anything to distract me from what's going on, really, right? And um, this guy is going to kick me off the team after the meeting. His name's Bank Robber Dave. He might have spoken at this meeting. Uh, I was in the penitentiary with Bank Robber Dave, and we played softball together, and he was sober two and a half years, and I had no idea, but I was playing on a sober softball team. <laughs> And Dave's job was to kick me off the team after the game because they had had a discussion. They had a little talk among them and nobody wanted to be there when the guys came up and started stabbing me because it's live ammunition on that, on that yard. There's guys in towers with mini 14s and they shoot to kill and that's all there is to it. I don't know. There's been a lot. What other prison story? I mean, I've been through as anything you can imagine that has ever happened in a prison, I've been through it. So, hmm. instead of kicking me off the team, David said, you know, we have these meetings here. One alcoholic talking to another, just like, hey, man. I know you're in bad shape. I've been where you've been. And we were reading like last night, page 18, 19, about how what's amazing is the, the alcoholic in a couple of hours has the ability to win the confidence of the newcomer, you know, just spending time and telling our stories like we're doing right now. That you guys can believe that I actually came from where I came from and that I have found it. I'm sober 22 years. I'm a general contractor in good standing. I'm a builder in the state of California. I have my general builder's license. Like I went to school during COVID and put it together. I'm married, I got a couple of kids. Like we live in Huntington Beach in a nice house, living a good life. It's impossible to be from the guy that everyone was worried about shots fired. Like you can't play with us anymore. We don't wanna be around you. This is, these are hardcore convicts saying, we don't wanna be around you. You know, I was that guy. So to go from that to where I'm at today, I'm a miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a beautiful tragedy, but the tragedy had to happen for the beauty to occur. What I did was I spent the next 14 years inside. Dave invited me to a meeting. I went and he invited me on June 20th of 2000. I went on June 21st and I haven't taken anything that affects me from the neck up from that day to this, nothing. Not some little pill to help me sleep, not a little something to take the edge off. I know that there's mental stuff that people need to take medications and I do not fault anybody. I don't judge for any of that. Like you have your path, you know? I don't take anything because I'm worried to death that I'll go back to where I was. I mean, wouldn't you be? 
So Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a beautiful life. And those next 14 years that I spent cleaning sober inside, I worked with a lot of men. You know, I got it. I, I actually, people talk about one, two, oh, the guy one, two, three stepped and then they're out the door because everyone's scared to write an inventory. No, you didn't take the third step. Because if you had turned your will and your life over the care of God, you would have immediately embarked on a vigorous course of action, which it would have been writing and telling your story to another man, which would have got you to six and seven and eight and nine. And then you get to the 12th step and you're giving it away. And we have to give it away to keep it. I know people that are sober that really don't go to meetings so much anymore. They're not giving it away. I don't know what the quality of their life is. I'm not going to risk mine ever. Like I'm here, I'm willing to sponsor, I'm willing to take numbers, I'm willing to do whatever's asked of me in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm willing to do that because of the life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. I'm super blessed to be here. I'm sorry that I spent so much time on my growing up, my youth or whatever, but, um, but that's been my experience. I've been out for eight years now and uh, I get married, I've got a couple of kids, you know, all the stuff that I missed. You know, when I was 30 and 28, when I got locked up, I didn't have kids. You know, I was married, but I didn't have kids. And uh, so Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a whole second life. And I'm super grateful for that. And I'm grateful for you guys. That's all I got.